Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutasa Aparuta ne sangamatasa tawara ye sorvanta bamunjantu satang So, coming from Maikuti, walking over to the temple with Ajahna Soko, he was pointing out the sound of the chainsaw, and I couldn't hear it. So, and is this a blessing or a curse? So in, in the temple, I hardly ever hear the, unless you're sitting close, what you're saying. Or in the party mocha, if you speak in a low voice, I can't really hear anything. So today has been a request to talk about free will and the world because free will is a very much a Western world concept because it's very, we, we, those of us brought up in Western civilization, Western world, have this sense of free will as is something part of our experience. And then there's discussions about what is free will, or is it really free? <clears throat> and what does free mean? And so the world, in this terms, the samsara, in Buddhist terms, is... Uh, the sensory experiences we have through the body, through the senses, the object, the senses themselves and the objects that are objects of the various senses. And then we are conditioned. The ego is a definitely a conditioning. It's a programming we acquire in early childhood. <clears throat> And the sense of the world and, and belief systems, whether it be religious, political, or whatever, are conditioned into us. <clears throat> so the conditioned world is not a, a free, is not really free. It's programmed, just like on a computer. So that's why the world is the way it is, why intelligent, educated people can't agree on very simple issues. Because we see things from our own conditioned perspective. 
which for each one of us can be very different, even if we're from the same family. So, defining the world, it's what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, what we think, our emotional habits, which are all conditioned, empty conditions. And that's what we tend to build a sense of a separate self or the belief in free will is out of words, concepts. <clears throat> in Buddhist countries, they don't have this concept of free will. They have the, usually the concept of karma, law of karma. So as long as we're bound to the conditioning that we've acquired through our life's experience, and we don't see it, and, and in terms of wisdom, what it really is, then we operate, even in monasteries, from very personal attitudes of various views and opinions about practice, about Buddhism, about politics, about everything that we've been conditioned to believe in or to disbelieve, because disbelief is also another conditioned problem for us. So belief itself is, take the word belief, it, you acquire beliefs and just like just the basic programming and early childhood of learning to speak and you learn that from your mother, father, from your brothers and sisters. You learn to speak the language that they speak. So that's an acquired, that's an acquisition that, you know, has certain advantages, worldly advantages, because we enjoy speaking, talking, thinking, creating conditions, seeing ourselves in terms of success or failures, of good and bad, our attachment to, to the perceptions of female and male, these can be issues that we quarrel over, fight over. But when we investigate the world, the ego, the conditioning, how do we do that? You know, if it's, it's not for you just to believe that it's all empty phenomena, it's some kind of another belief idea that you acquire from being Buddhist. Because it's not about believing that everything, that all conditions are empty or that there's no self, but it's to find out for yourself whether this is, is reality. What is reality? What is the supreme reality of everything? And so we get into various forms of metaphysical perceptions and philosophical discussions. 
But notice that this is all about thinking, programming with language that we've acquired. And so as Theravadan Buddhists, you know, then we acquire the, you know, the monastic training is conditioning process, like the Vinaya is about conditioning oneself in terms of action and speech, about behavior, conforming with, to the use of our physical actions and what we say. But is it about becoming a Buddhist monk or a Buddhist nun that we're here for? Is that our goal to to become just another form, another worldly convention that we consider maybe superior to the sensory materialistic societies that we've grown up in? Are we just acquiring another identity as Theravadan Buddhists, as Thai forest monks, as, or whatever identity you choose, they're, they're all empty. So this is uh, where the emphasis on conscious awareness. So when I chanted the opening, Aparutadi Sangamatasatara, the the gate to the deathless is open, or the door, the entrance to the deathless is open. That's the first line. So that made a big impression on me years ago, before I was really uh, having much insight into meditation, but some things in the suttas really grab you. You know, something really speaks to you very strongly. And that particular phrase, the, the Buddha made this pronouncement, the gate to the deathless is open. So what is that, you know? the gate. What is the deathless? What does that mean? Because death is, is the reality of the world. It's all about change. The world is all about dying, death, birth and death. <clears throat> And then the Buddha made this pronouncement. It wasn't a supposition. He didn't say, I believe the gates to the deathless are open, or I think they are open, or my view about the, about the gates to the deathless are open. It made a kind of definite statement. Aparuta de sangamatasatavara. So that kind of statement was very powerful in my own experience and development in this tradition because the deathless was a, was a word that I was quite interested in. It's something, it kind of opened something up for me because all my education, my whole sense of a 
separate self was all about birth and death, about me, this physical body, this form. What I thought, my, do I have free will? Or am I just a programmed entity? Or is there some higher force in the universe that I've got to connect to? Or what is the meaning of the word God? Or ultimate reality? <clears throat> so in investigating, especially in investigating the ego, you know, the question is, can, can the ego know the ego? So if I start operating from, I want to investigate my ego, that's still part of the ego, is I want to investigate my ego. It's a good suggestion, but it's still the sense of, I'm somebody who's investigating his ego. So in this, in Pali terms, there's Sakya Ditti, the first fetter, it's very important to to question what is that what does that mean sakyaditi it's a it's a nice poly word we translate it into the ego which is a shorter version and then the question the investigatory ability to question what how can it, can the ego investigate itself can I, Prasumato, see my ego as an object? Or if I'm so identified with my name, my position, my religious preferences, can that, you know, is that what I'm bound to and can and try to prove that the this tradition is right and that four noble truths is a great teaching and that the buddha is the wisest human being that ever existed you know one can easily believe such things when you feel a kind of faith and interest arise in a religious tradition or a philosophy Sometimes you think you've really discovered something special that nobody else really understands. So the ego does manage to wrap itself around even faith in a tradition or in a guru, in a teacher. But in terms of the Four Noble Truths or the dependent origination, this is about investigating the ego, not just trying to create a, a nice Buddhist ego. Maybe it's a Buddhist ego is preferable to the ego that I tended to be critical of before I studied or practiced meditation. Or is Buddhism superior to other religions? You know, we can take sides and think Theravada is even superior to Mahayana or the, or vice versa, you know, because these words about it's superior, about superiority or inferiority are concepts, empty phenomena. 
that we grasp and tend to interpret experience, our life experience, through our own prejudices and biased conditioning. Is this free will? Do we have really, as egos, free will to make choices to become enlightened? Can the ego choose to become enlightened? So when we talk about the ego, is there anybody's ego that is capable of enlightenment? So these are questions to investigate conscious, the consciousness that we're all experiencing here and now that isn't conditioned by culture, by any other thing, that is natural. We don't create consciousness. It's not about we're free to create consciousness. Consciousness is the very basis, the very being of existence. Behind all that exists, if there was no consciousness there, how could anything possibly exist? If none of us had, were had conscious, if we weren't conscious, we don't, we don't experience the sensory world. We can't reflect on the sensory world if we're unconscious. So in the, these various teachings of the Buddha, the four foundations of mindfulness and so forth, these are all helpful guidelines, guideposts, signposts. Where are they pointing? They're always pointing here. And I point to the heart chakra. So it's looking inward, isn't it? It's not seeking proof that Buddhism is better than other religions by reading various treatises on it or various uh, books of philosophy or take courses in comparative religions because all of that is empty phenomena. No matter how intelligent or knowledgeable you become in terms of worldly knowledge, refined or coarse or whatever quality it, you might describe it as being, it's still something that arises and ceases, something that has no permanent value. It's not the deathless. So the, the liberating kind of sense of the gate to the deathless is open is that it's always been open. And for those of us that have this human form, you know, we'd, we're usually programmed to not notice that, the gate to the deathless. We're, we're programmed to believe, to make assumptions. We can choose, you know, is it choose good behavior, bad behavior? Is that free will that we can choose uh, our behavior, our thoughts, our memories, 
we we can make personal choices, but usually it's from the programming ego that we make our choices that we call free will. So what is actually absolutely free at this very here and now presence is awareness, conscious awareness. Because that's, we don't choose that. That's not about me making free choices or being liberated through choice as an ego but through understanding, through insight into the nature of the world as it is, what, however you experience it, whether it's pleasant or painful, good or evil, however it, the world appears to you at this very moment, it is a condition and that can't be denied, because try to sustain a condition. You know, the idea of a perfect monk, or perfect nun, or a perfect religion, or a perfect society. <clears throat> we can create images of perfection through, our, through the superlative use of words. But the world is like this, it's a changing flux. And the world is different for each one of us. It's not the same world, even though we assume we all experience the same world. But why do we find it so difficult to understand each other on personal issues? It's because we aren't in the same world. So we think, see things through the very conditioning process that we acquired quite innocently when we were innocent children. So you get what your parents give you and what your peers tell you and the kind of culture and religion and social position that you've been born into. You acquire that kind of, those perceptions and all that goes along with it, which you didn't choose, it just happens. Because innocence is, is very susceptible to corruption. So children, you know, can, why we want to protect children as we're adults, we, one of our great sense of duties is to protect the innocence of children Because we appreciate that children are quite innocent, the innocence of children is quite moving, we quite beautiful. But then you get to an age where you aren't innocent anymore. And so innocence is easily corrupted. That's why child abuse is corrupting something innocent, some child that's innocent, before it knows what's happening or has any, any ability to, to have any view about right or wrong, good or bad. So what we're, 
using now in this winter's retreat is wisdom along with conscious awareness. And it's our ability, this ability to observe the ego that's not in ego, like sati sampatanya, mindfulness, conscious awareness is not an ego. It's not conditioned by culture or religion or anything else. So when the Buddha made the proclamation the gate to the deathless is open, you know, and then the teachings that followed, the Four Noble Truths that I really respect, that I've used all these years for reflection, to understand the, cause, the suffering and the causes of suffering and the end of suffering. So then you might ask, do you suffer anymore? You know, you've been a monk for over 50 years. And, you know, do you, Ajahn Sumedho, do you suffer? And so then the answer, of course, is suffering is the nature of the conditioned realm. But through investigating the conditioned realm with wisdom, which is not about language or culture or even intellect, it's natural wisdom that we we we're using to, to observe, witness the emptiness of phenomena. So can an empty phenomena witness another empty phenomena? And then you, you know, that very kind of question, when you ask yourself that question, you know, it's, it's really obviously it can't. So what is sati sampachanya? Is that a condition, some special condition that we might have or might not have? You know, is that a, an empty phenomenon or is that the gate to the deathless? And uh, that's what it is, the gate to the deathless is sati sampachanya. Because the ego then, you can be aware, think, deliberately think, I am a human being. You know, you're creating the word with something that's quite on, not controversial, but you know, that we assume we are human beings and that's taken for granted. But those are words, English words in in a grammatical context with a pronoun, personal pronoun, verb, and adjective. So, you know, this 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 is a creation. But when you intentionally think, I am a human being, it's not a matter of 
whether, deciding whether you are or are not, but observing how you, the thinking process itself. What is it aware that you, what is it aware of thinking that's not a thought? When I think I'm thinking, I'm claiming to be, be uh, somebody who thinks, and thinking is like this, and that awareness of thinking is not a thought. That's sati sampatanya. So all these pronouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, prepositions, the whole English grammar, or grammar of any language, is, is empty phenomena. So we have a sense of what's proper English, what's proper use of grammar that you acquire, then there's a colloquial use of grammar and different variations on English-speaking people and listening to the Radio World Service in the morning, they, they have all these speakers from African and Asian countries with strong accents. They're speaking English, and it's all an acquired acquisition that they've had through learning things, they're taking something from outside and, and remembering it. But what isn't a memory? What do we do? Is memory something you can trust? Or is memory, you know, a, another empty phenomenon? And so these are, we, you know, we're told to investigate this. The five khandhas, for example. Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana. So is the, is the body. So we investigate. Not, you're not just believing that the body is an empty phenomenon because it says so in the scriptures, but what is it? You know, can you, you're aware of the body. Aware, what is aware of the breath? What is it that's aware of inhaling or exhaling? What is aware of the sitting posture right now? What is aware that sitting is like this? Because the four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, is the four basic movements of a human form during the day and night. So the human form is the course kanda, you know, it's always here and now because that's one thing we can, you know, verify that right now sitting is like this. But we might, when we sit, we tend to not notice it's like this. We tend to be caught up in doing something else, thinking or trying to meditate or trying to stop thinking or trying to get tranquil through concentration. But the body is a, is a kind of, in this sense of the five khandhas, is not about 
anything other than recognizing the basic postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, breathing, that the body naturally does, whether you claim it in any personal way or not. So we might, you know, when we're in meditation, we think of perfect postures. Can people sitting in chairs really meditate? You know, I've heard discussions like this. You know, can we, if you sit in, in the lotus posture, which is perfect yogic posture, which most people can't manage, is that the perfect posture for enlightenment? Do you have to be in, in the lotus posture to get enlightened? And so then the posture becomes something we're trying to aim for perfect posture. We're not noticing the way it is. Sitting in a chair is like this, sitting on a mat, on a zafu, or sitting in lotus posture is like this. So suddenly we're just, we're not trying to, to criticize or claim anything about the posture, just noticing the very simplicity, the very act that is quite ordinarily something we, we don't pay much attention to until it starts being painful or unpleasant. And that applies to standing, walking, and lying down. So what is coarse? What is obvious in the khanda? The physical body, it's a bag of food that needs to be fed every day. So we eat food, we swallow food, we excrete the waste through the orifices of the body. This is all of the nature of the body. And yet the body is a very strong identity because we've been conditioned since we were innocent children to believe that one is this physical form. And so we, we attach to that, that, you know, there's no question of that sense of I am this physical form, it seems quite obvious in worldly terms, in the thinking mind. This body is me, it's mine. We, we're aware of our age, of a gender, whether it's male or female, the color of the skin, the color of the eyes, and so forth, there are strong personal identities that we've been programmed to attach to. Then Vedana, or feeling, pleasure, pain, neutral feeling. So usually, you know, the ignorant, unaware individual is caught up in seeking pleasurable sensations through the body and trying to avoid or get rid of the painful, unpleasant sensations that we experience. So, in a heedless life, the ego wants the pleasurable ones. I want to have a comfortable, pleasant, physical existence. And that's a reasonable desire, but it is a desire. 
and painful, unpleasant experiences through the body, nobody wants. But what is aware of wanting or not wanting? By just not wanting, not wanting is, is a game of the mind. You go around in circles, it's hopeless. Trying to get rid of pain or discomfort. But then we're encouraged to notice neutral sensations on the, on the body. So they are pleasant and painful and neutral. And who, who really is very much aware of neutral sensation? You know, what is it? What do you mean by that? And then, of course, it's quite obvious, isn't it? Just the one hand touching the other. It's neither pleasant nor painful, it's like this. But you, when you pay attention just to the sense of robes touching your skin, you're suddenly aware of the, how sensitive this form is in its various conditions of pleasure, pain, and neutral sensations. So we identify with a very sensitive form that was born and is get it, growing up, getting old, and will die. And somehow, you know, like death in modern society is not a subject that is considered polite conversation because we can, we can dismiss, of course, you know, I say we're all going to die and everybody will agree to that. But what is death? You know, what dies when the body dies? And we think, uh, I will die. When, when this body dies, then I will die. That's the logic of identi identity with the age of the body, the form of the body. So we, we begin to trust this awareness. Yesodavantabamuntantusatang is the second stanza of this affirmation of reality. Yea, so to one to those who can hear, trust this. This cake to the death is this sati sampachanya. It's here and now, it's not personal. It's not an achievement like I'm really good at sati sampachanya. You know, that's, that's, I can, I can think that or tell somebody that, but then that, is taking credit for something that's not me. Satisampachanya is dhamma, is natural. And this is the gift that we have as human forms, is that we can reflect on the way it is. So the world, the more we contemplate the world, and how it should or shouldn't be, you know, we can become depressed because, you know, the, the uh, news of the day, the general in information we acquire about climate change and COVID pandemic and all that's quite depressing. Overpopulation, drought, famine, 
floods, volcanoes, earthquakes, you know, and our lives are constantly being threatened with sudden death or pain or misery of some sort because we we see the world as an object of our senses and what we believe is the world, what we've been told is the real world is an illusion. But we're not dismissing the world or trying to get out of it, but to understand the very nature of the world is change. And it's always been that way, whether you realize it or not, you know, throughout history or perceptions of time. What is time but the incessant changingness? So it's like, what is aware of the ego? And that's a very important question to ask yourself. And then really bring your ego into consciousness, develop all the fears or conceits that you can possibly create and listen to them. They rise and they cease. That whole structure of a pronoun, verb, adjective is in constant change. And what, where does it change into? You know, we, through grammar, through the conditioning of grammar, we go from I am a human being and it, it's a complete statement. But behind, what is underlying the words that we're thinking, we're deliberately thinking, we're not interested in the words and their meaning anymore. But as we begin to see the space between the words, or before we start thinking, I, there's still conscious awareness. You don't have to think to be any, to be alive in here and now. So thinking is also, the skillful use of thought is to use it for reflection, not to just be caught up in endless beliefs, and, and no matter how profound or wise they may seem, but to question, investigate. This is what we're free to do, encouraged to do. But it's not a personal thing. Because to, to make my spiritual journey very personal, you know, to talk about how I became a Buddhist and how I met Ajahn Chah is kind of historical, but it's not reality. You know, because it's using words and the sense of and me as a separate form that that did this and did that and developed this and that. So if there's no person, this Sati Sampachanya doesn't have a language. 
It isn't about Pali, Sanskrit, or English, or any other language. But it is aware of the very nature of the world as this conditioned realm changing. It's not judging it. It's not saying the world is bad or we're trying to destroy the world or create a perfect world. It's not about ideas of perfection or, or destruction. It's not forming views and opinions about the world, but the world as we experience as individuals is empty because its nature is change. Impermanence or anicca. And this, as you keep investigating this, you know, not just, as I've said before many times, not just believing in impermanence, but you notice it. It's happening all the time. Everything's changing. Every moment, these, the world that we believe is a stable society or, a, you know, or what we hope will eventually achieve a, a kind of utopian society where everything is perfect. That's another illusion. A perfect world is an, is an ideal that has no reality in itself. Because perfection doesn't lie in the changingness of phenomena. So when we talk about perfection, is that just another superlative English word? You know, so, and of course it is, you know, in terms of English language. But it's also, is there such a thing as perfection, complete wholeness, that which is beyond the changing conditions that change according to their karma, their nature, their tendencies. And so we, in Theravada Buddhism, we're, we're left with the word Dhamma. So this Sati Sampatanya is the gate, the door to perfection, to Dhamma, to liberation, to freedom. And Yesodavanta, those who are listening, trust this. You know, it's a, it's a not, you know, the sense of trust isn't about just believing it, but you have a whole system of investigating teachings in this tradition which are always pointing at that. So you're not left with just a, that you've got, you say, personally trust what the Buddha said about the gate to the deathless being open. But what does that mean? What is the reality of it? Is it just a, a, an inspiring statement that the Buddha made, or is it ultimately true? And Yesodavanta, those who are listening, who are paying attention, then we 
By trusting it doesn't mean we believe it, but we investigate. So we have these, these various investigatory teachings that are very much a part of the Theravada tradition to, to find out for ourselves. And that's what I encourage you all to do during this winter's retreat. This is a open door opportunity to, to, you know, an invitation that's made available here at Amravati to investigate. Not just try to get tranquil and peaceful or get something, you know, through controlling the environment, but really using these teachings to look inward. You know, stop looking outward. Give up reading or trying to figure everything out, but trust in awareness. The first noble truth of suffering and its causes. And these, these very teachings, you know, are in, to investigate, not, to, not for grasping or belief. So the Winter's Retreat is, a, is here in England, like the other branch monasteries, I think, keep the same tradition. Wintertime in England is like this. And, uh, and it's in a three-month period of where, it, you know, there's kind of formal meditation practices meetings to practice meditation together. That gives a sense of support. We're supporting each other in a group through meeting in the temple and practicing meditation together. And then opportunities to practice alone in your kuti. So which is the best? The, the group meetings, the guided meditations or being alone in your kuti, you learn from both in the sense of, I found my own personal experience sitting in a group very encouraging because you're, everybody's trying to support everybody else by being quiet. And you have to sit through a period of time that you might find uh, physically painful, sitting in one position for an hour or something like that. But also it gives a chance to investigate the body, the pain, and that which is aware of pain. Is awareness painful ever? Ask yourself that. Is, does awareness ever feel pain or awareness doesn't feel. It's the body. So the awareness of pain, pain becomes an object rather than a personal problem. The same with pleasure. In a group meditation, you know, like I used to like to sit for hours sometimes because I get very tranquil. And then uh, 
going back into daily life <clears throat> can seem very busy getting back in the old routines of monastic life at Amravati. But in the, in the long run, the, both work very well, both the, both the ordinary daily life of monasticism here at Amravati or its special privileged occurrences such as the winter retreat or personal retreats or, or self-retreats. They all can be beneficial to us if we trust in awareness. He sort of one to one taba munchan to satan. So what is the, about free will is another concept, very Western concept. Is there free will or not? Or are we just programmed robots? You know, then we start thinking in terms of our own personal views about, I, I don't want to be a, considered a, a programmed robot. I want to think I have a free will and I'm an individual I have my rights, I am, and then we see ourselves in terms of, of, you know, our right to think what we want, to make our own decisions, not to be forced to take vaccinations, not uh, you know, about wearing masks. You know, there's so much emphasis on, you know, rebelliousness, about not conforming to mandates in the media these days, and then many of us who who rebelled against uh, modern middle-class society when we were young, it was very much a sense of, you know, I'm not going to be like my parents, just a cipher in the system uh, that I, how I judged my parents' life as being very boring and mediocre. You know, the ego wanted something more, something more meaningful than what I perceived, the way I perceived my own family background, my own cultural conditioning. But it was still ego about me being a nonconformist, about me standing on my own, about me and mine. And even taking that stand was not an escape from suffering. In, in fact, intended to create very many more problems in my life through taking that stand than I would have had if I'd been nicely conforming to the middle-class American values. But it's through this investigation of uh, the reality of here and now, because that's all there ever is. It's, there's no, time is an illusion. The past is a memory in the here and now. The future is an imagine, is an image, is a concept. What's going to happen to the world? Is it going to, is Mother Earth kind of fed up with the overpopulation of the human 
race on the planet, which is destroying the environment, and we can take personal responsibility for all this. You know, so we see it in terms of, you know, this doom and destruction, apocalyptic kind of experiences imagined. But here and now is like this. So at this very moment, sitting in this temple, at this moment, sitting, breathing, is like this. The kind of mental state you're witnessing, you can, what is it that witnesses the, the emotion or the mood, the state of mind that you're experiencing individually is like this. So is that a person? Is that is Satisampachanya some personal gift? Or is it natural? Is it Dhamma? Dhammachat? Reality itself. It's a gift that this human form has. So we have teachings from the Buddha, from the past, that still are useful and valuable to use at this time in modern society, which is very different, no doubt, very different from the society in India 2,565 years ago. But suffering is the same now as, as it was at the time of the Buddha. Birth, old age, sickness, death is the same. Pleasure, pain through the senses, through the body is like this. The ego, no matter how it manifests, whether you're, you know, whether you're identified with tribal perceptions or clan conceptions or, or democratic perceptions, conservative or liberal perceptions, they're all empty phenomena. And what isn't empty and isn't phenomenal is sati sampatanya. So, he sort of one muntan tu satang, have faith in this. And this faith isn't a blind belief, but a liberating investigation of the reality of here and now. So I offer this as a reflection.